Hello, and welcome to this episode of Engineering a Better World, a society, technology and policy podcast from The House magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. I'm your host, John Ellidge. How can technology lead the fight against climate change? In this series from the heart of Westminster, The House magazine and the OAT discuss with parliamentarians and industry experts how technology and engineering can provide policy solutions to our changing world. In this episode, we explore the urgent issue of how we can strengthen our climate resilience. And stick around at the end of this episode because after our usual panel discussion, I'll be interviewing the Shadow Minister for Nature, Water and Flooding, Olivia Blake. With us today, we have Vera Hobhouse, who has been a Lib Dem spokesperson on environment and climate change and has been pushing for an early end to carbon emissions and a ban on fracking. Vera, thank you for being with us. Well, good morning and thank you for having me. We also have with us Philip Dunn, the Conservative MP who chairs the Cross-Party Environmental Audit Committee and who is the winner of the 2021 Green Business Politician of the Year Award. Hello, Philip. Hello, John. And last but not least, from the IET, we have Simon Harrison, who's had a nearly 30-year career with the consultancy Mont MacDonald, was a past chair of the IET Energy Panel and is a vice president of the IET. Simon, thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to start with a fairly wide-ranging question. We're recording this just off the back of the, the COP26 conference. I'm kind of curious to know whatever I'm made of it. Is it pushing the world in the direction we actually need to be going? Vera, perhaps we start with you. Well, of course, it's very good that more and more countries are coming on board um, with putting their mind to net zero. And we have had further commitments, but to me, they have not gone far enough. We are talking about phasing down coal. We have to remember that fossil fuels are not just coal, but also gas and oil. We have heard nothing um, really about that. And for me, the most important thing is now to really look at an end of all fossil fuel use. We have heard too little about that. And that is really the most important thing. We need to completely change from digging out or taking out of the soil um, fossil fuels, using them either in energy or in products, and think of alternatives. And far too little has been done about this overall agenda. Philip, do you agree with that? Was it ambitious enough? The takeaway I took was the tremendous sense of cohesion about the need to get a grip on climate change action which I think was quite striking about how many countries were prepared to make more significant commitments than they have in the past. Of course, the COP process is an iterative one. You tend to build on the previous COP each time in making commitments stronger. And I think what happened in Glasgow was we had commitments on forests, on methane, on finance, on transport. And we did, for the first time, have coal and fossil fuels specifically referenced in the communique. And I think although we uh, we didn't get the progress that we wanted, and there was a bit of backtracking towards the end, I think the takeaway that I took from this is that there is now very clear consensus amongst governments that the days of fossil fuels are numbered and will be phased out over a period of time. The other thing I'd like to add is that we had nature included in there for the first time in a major way, particularly through the deforestation commitments, and uh, greater inclusion of indigenous communities in the process, which I think was very striking because of the contributions made by impressive delegates, many of them young, from countries that are completely threatened. Uh, Simon, what was your big takeaway? I was at COP uh, for the second week, and I agree with what's been said, but just to, just to add something else, really, and COP is, is primarily, of course, about the intergovernmental negotiations, 
But it's also much more than that. And I heard it characterized by the city treasurer of Glasgow, actually. He said he felt there were two cops going on. There was, was the cop that we've just been speaking about. And there was another cop which was happening across the wider zones of the of the conference and out in the city. That was a cop which was all about business, about cities, about NGOs, about collaboration, and about a different type of progress. And, and I was very encouraged, actually, to, to hear the stories that were coming from the best of business from around the world, the stories that are coming from city mayors, and the new forms of collaboration and industry associations and commitments that were being made completely outside of the governmental process. And so it's not going fast enough. There's loads to do. It's a huge, huge challenge. But there was a whole perspective there that I didn't feel was really getting much airtime in the media. On the huge challenges side, it was good at this COP to hear what we broadly call adaptation being discussed. So in other words, the response to climate change as opposed to mitigating climate change. Things like flood protection, storm damage, extreme heat, those kind of things. And that was getting a degree of prominence at this COP, but nowhere near enough, especially for the Global South. There's a, there's a huge mountain to climb there. Generally, I think in the Global South, some issues there in low-income countries in particular, just not really having the wherewithal to respond, either financial or in capacity terms. Um, And the other big one I saw just uh, kind of around the place was that Americans were everywhere. The USA is back and they are grabbing this at federal, state, city and private sector levels in a really interesting and positive action oriented way. So I think there will be things we'll be able to learn from from the US. That's really interesting to hear about America being back. I mean, this was also COP26 was also an opportunity to to put the UK at the forefront of this debate. But it, it did take place just days after the Chancellor of the Exchequer cuts fuel duty on internal flights. Did the UK really kind of seize that opportunity to kind of claim global leadership of this or, or, or did it kind of miss that? Philip, perhaps we go to you. Sure. Well, I think for me, the, the standout contribution of the UK to this was having Mark Carney as the finance ambassador and picking up on what Simon said. You know, he mobilised financial institutions, banks from the UK and then from right around the world to make very significant commitments about how they will be decarbonising their activities, their loan books, their portfolios. This will be the major influence, in my view, about how corporates change behaviour over the coming years, because the rule books are going to change and the financiers are going to change their own perspective on what they want to finance. And we're going to move towards decarbonising our economy through private sector investment at a much more rapid pace than we have hitherto. And I think the UK played a big role in that, partly by kicking it off with financial disclosure requirements, because the City of London is such an important part of our economy and a global leader, genuine global leader. We're well placed to lead the world and encourage other financial centres to follow our lead. Vera, you sit on the opposition benches. Do you do you agree with that? What what everybody says today is yes, progress has been made. And what I'm saying is it's too slow because we have waited for too long. We've got really the next ten years in which we have to halve emissions. And the private sector is all well and good. But I think it is now also the moment for government not um, to do everything, but to set very clear leadership of where um, financial institutions, where consumers, where businesses are going to go. And the UK is just not setting really these signals, the UK government. 
And that is very disappointing. And the UK government is also not leading in terms of making it very clear that new coal mines um, in Cumbria, a new oil field up in, uh, in, the, in the north of Scotland, those are the things where we cannot go ahead with. And yet these signals are not being set by government. Therefore, the leadership that I've been looking for, uh, for from the UK government has been very sadly missing. This is now very important. Governments do play a, a role. Leaving it all to the private sector is just simply not good enough. It, it does feel like the government as a whole has grand ambitions for this, but often the Treasury kind of kind of lacks the will to, to actually back them up. I mean, as we're, as we're speaking, we're just seeing a lot of the big rail investments planned being effectively gutted. I mean, Simon, do you think that the government is being ambitious enough for these things? Well, I think the government has, has set a good backdrop, but... It's then the follow through, I, I guess, that concerns me. And I, and I think, you know, some inconsistency in decision making as has been highlighted. But also, for me, there are three things that are, that are really hard, actually, but, but need to be grasped. One is what we technically would call systems thinking, but so essentially looking at this problem holistically, understanding how everything's connected to everything else, making sure we don't solve it in silos, but solve it together is something that really needs to be grabbed hold of and driven urgently. I think there's an underestimation of what delivery means in terms of actually doing things on the ground that are going to make impact rather than policy setting. So in other words, the the time to do the talking is part of the timetable, but the time to actually deliver on the ground is a much longer part of the timetable. And we need to make sure that there's enough time to do that. And the other thing for me is the right conversation with society. This won't be deliverable if it's not supported across society, including amongst people who could be quite adversely impacted by the whole thing if they're struggling with, you know, affording to uh, to, to get through life. Being asked to do a whole bunch of new things for the climate is not necessarily going to be popular. That for me is is a piece that's that's perhaps being ducked at the moment as well. I mean, the topic of this particular episode is climate resilience. That's obviously a very broad topic that can mean so many different things. What do you think, personally, Simon, are the, are the big areas that we should be thinking about in terms of making the UK as a whole more climate resilient? From a, a, a mitigation of climate change perspective, that's slightly different to building resilience against the consequences of climate change. I would suggest that it's about decarbonising the sources of energy, which we're well on with, although we're not doing it very systemically, perhaps. But it's also then about really pushing hard on uses and firstly, asking whether we need to do particular activities at all, but then doing them using less energy. You know, if you look at things like heating, that's a, that's a huge amount of, of the UK's energy consumption it would be really good if we were able to insulate the building stock a lot better than we managed to. That's a difficult conversation to be had with people because it's potentially quite invasive in, in people's homes. But um, it's a, a nettle that I, I think really needs to be grasped because if we don't insulate, we need to use a lot more energy to heat. The decarbonisation of transport is something that the government is well on with, with its um, electric vehicle targets and so on. But there's, again, a lot more that needs to be done there in terms of um, the infrastructure to support electric vehicles. If we're going to expect people to use them normally across the whole population quite quickly, we're not moving anything like fast enough with the um, charging infrastructure and models for doing that in rural areas as well as in cities as well. Vera, what do you think are the, the key parts of the puzzle here? Well, um, Simon has actually summarised um, quite of the big issues very well. And again, you know, let me come back to um, my point that it is also time for government to act. 
if we are talking about people who will be burdened with extra costs, the government needs to come in and support those who cannot afford the transition with very big support packages. And yes, that will cost the government money, but the government has just shown in a pandemic how huge amounts of money can be spent from the government if they want to. And therefore, I think the government should really look at the climate emergency in the same way as it has looked at the pandemic as a crisis on which it needs to spend a lot of money. Yes, particularly conservative governments are always very cautious about spending um, from Treasury. But, you know, we have heard time and again that if we don't spend the money now, it will be so much more expensive if we miss the targets. Um, and indeed, if we miss the 2050 target, it's going to be lights out for a lot of people, not necessarily in this country, but in the global south. We will have massive migration problems. We will have problems of, of really fighting over, over land where you can actually live. That will impact this country too. And we've talked earlier about um, the global south that needs um, supporting. Now, every country needs to do their bit and needs to do it fast. And therefore, it is a time for government to make extra commitments in terms of spending, leaving it just to a business and, uh, and to investors is not good enough. Yes, of course, um, we need private business. I'm absolutely for innovation technology. You know, our excellent University of Bath is looking at solutions. And of course, it's also time for business for the whole of society to come behind here. But it is also time for big government to make the big decisions, but also to make the spending commitments, for example, supporting poorer households with a big transition that it needs to do in terms of changing, you know, either home insulation, but also changing from our gas boilers. We need to get away from, from heating um, the, the way we heat most our homes through some form of fossil fuels. All of that needs to change. It needs to change quickly. People need support with that. And the government needs to come forward with plans exactly how it's going to deliver that. Philip, I mean, do you think the, the Treasury is on board with, with some of the big upfront investments that are going to be needed to kind of transition us to a much cleaner economy? Well, we had just before COP the net zero strategy and the net zero review, which the Treasury had signed up to, was part of. So I think that they're engaged in the conversation. Um, our committee takes the lead on scrutinising government policy and delivery against policy on environmental issues. So we've been looking at a number of these issues that have been mentioned by Simon and Vera. And I think it's, you know, it's fair to say that the government has taken action in some areas and has been slower to take action, frankly, in part due to the diversion of coping with the pandemic for the last 18 months that undoubtedly slowed the production of many strategies and policy statements that were in the works but weren't able to be completed. They've, I think, come out with about 13 state policy strategies during the course of this year, so post and as we recover from the pandemic. So they're beginning to, to step up a gear. But the government has done a number of things where I think been successful in reducing emissions from decarbonising our energy market, as was mentioned by Simon earlier. And much of that has been by providing the demand signals for industry to be able to understand what the framework that they will be operating within. So the contracts for difference has been the major mechanism to get offshore wind off to such a success. And there's a huge ramp up of that to, to increase in future. We've just recently seen announcements over nuclear to be able to cope with base loads. And of course, that was something that was held up, ignored by the previous Labour government, held up in the coalition by the Liberal Democrats. And finally, we've got some decisions on that, which I think are essential to be able to ensure that we we can keep the lights on when the wind isn't burning, isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. 
Um, so I think you know, government is now getting into gear. Your question is the Treasury signed up to this. I think they they are in part, but they've also been they've been applying breaks, which has led to some false steps. So we had the on the subject of insulation that uh, Simon and Vera were both talking about. You know, we had the Green Homes Grant deal introduced the scheme introduced last summer as a an emergency economic package to try and stimulate recovery from the pandemic. But what it actually was was uh, in a false step in trying to encourage confidence amongst contractors and consumers to insulate their homes because many of them weren't able to access it. So we've got to learn from these mistakes and, and bring in, put into place new schemes that will stimulate individuals to take action to enable us to achieve the kind of ambitious targets that are being set. So, I, Philip, I'm, I'm conscious I didn't ask you what you think the biggest priorities are. So I'm, I'm curious to know, what, what do you think the kind of biggest areas the government should be concentrating on here are? Well, I think we've, we've touched on some of them already. It's the decarbonising the economy. So that involves ensuring that we've got a stable and, and credible electricity supply, which means ensuring that we've got proper base load. So I think the announcements on nuclear are really important to significantly increase renewables. We've pretty much phased out coal already. I think we'll have done so in a couple of years' time. So I think good progress has been made there. But as was being said by Simon, I think the, the distribution of electricity, if we're going to be having a more, a more distributed generation system, has, has also got to be invested in significantly so that we can have the electricity where we need it to recharge electric vehicles and to supply electricity at the scale that we're going to need to increase it as other energy sources come off for industrial purposes. So I think there's a lot of work still to be done there. We've pretty much flatlined on emissions reduction in transport. So that area is very significant as well. The electric vehicle announcement by the government is very significant and will have a big increase. I think the last month I saw new car sales were 15% electric compared to internal combustion engine vehicles, and that's growing month by month. So I think the UK has a real opportunity to decarbonise our transport, personnel transport, very quickly, but we've got to then move on to what do we do about road freight and and other public transport, which is, is subject to some government support. But we've yet to see much of that getting through onto our streets. And I think the point that Simon was making about getting consumer confidence um, in these measures is really important. There has to be a debate, a discussion with consumers so that they feel that they, that they can play their part and that they can afford to engage. And I think we need to be pointing out, people like Vera and I, that there are benefits to decarbonising your own lifestyle. The cost of running an electric vehicle is much lower than the cost of filling up with petrol or diesel. The cost of heating your home once it's insulated and has got a zero emission or much reduced emission heating system is much lower. We've got another bell going, I'm afraid. Obviously, one of the reasons this is this is a complicated area is because the public are generally very on board with the idea of of greening the economy, but not necessarily on board with with the specific measures that's going to take and the lifestyle changes it it requires. Vera, how can government do more to kind of bring people along with this agenda? Well, we have been saying for a long time we need to run along um, citizens' assemblies, big engagement programs with um, people. And I think um, the first climate assembly was held, I think, over the summer. I didn't really know about it. I think we need to be much more public. 
with uh, engaging with the public and making sure that everybody can be heard and all the concerns are being heard and we need to persuade, of course we do, and particularly make sure that people are not afraid um, of the transition. And I agree with Philip here. People need to understand that actually at the end of it, we can have, first of all, much cleaner um, environments, much much less pollution, for example, but also um, possibly, hopefully in the long term, lower energy bills because we have insulated our homes and so on and so forth. But it takes time to persuade and that persuasion progress has really happened enough is a real problem. But can I just sort of come back to some of the things that uh, that, that Philip said earlier um, about what government has done or not done. First of all, in terms of the energy market and, and the contract for difference, that was actually driven by the Liberal Democrats and coalition government because we had a Department for Energy and Climate Change. I've been asking yesterday again, could we have a Department for Energy and Climate Change again? So we've got a dedicated Secretary of State that drives all the issues that we've just been talking about from within the department. Yes, of course, other departments need to be on board. It has to be cross-government. But to have actually a dedicated Minister or Secretary of State that really drives that is so important and the government is not doing that. And I find that very disappointing pointing. Same with when we are talking about what has been held up um, over the years. I mean, I personally don't think we need nuclear energy. I believe we could have much more renewable energy, but the renewable energy sector has actually been held up by this Tory government. There is no level playing field. There are subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, whereas um, the renewables in- industry has to stand on their own feet and really compete in a very competitive uh, market system. So why do we not create level playing fields between the fossil fuel industry and the renewables industry, for example? All of those things are still missing from action from the government. I hope to see a lot more progress. Yes, progress has been made, but it is far, far, far too slow. We're we're in danger of relitigating the record of the coalition government. So I'm going to go to the non-MP on the panel and ask Simon, what do you think the role of public opinion in driving change is? I actually think it's really, really important, actually, and and potentially an Achilles heel in, in delivering net zero by 2050. I think we're not really having the right quality of conversation with people at large so that they're able to understand the issues for themselves and and form their own views as to what they can do and have some ability to to achieve you know agency you know on their own account and it strikes me that that there's there's opportunity being missed here actually especially around the roles of cities and communities in engaging locally to find solutions and when you see the, the 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 energy that is displayed by so many cities, especially, but even counties now, in tackling climate emergencies, it seems to me that there's there's quite a an, an important disconnect to address between between the national and, and the more local. And in being a lot a lot clearer in in what the ask needs to be of cities, in what they can do really well. And then giving them the um, uh, the wherewithal to be able to play that role because they're able to connect with individuals rather better than can be done nationally. I'm just going to wrap up by asking each of our panellists to give us their, their, you know, in a sentence or two, their, their one big ask from the British government over the next few years in terms of achieving climate resilience. Vera, let's perhaps go to you first. Very simple. Set a clear UK end date for the extraction and use of fossil fuels, all fossil fuels, not just coal, all fossil fuels, oil and gas, whether we import it or whether we extract it ourselves. There needs to be an end date in the same way as the government has finally come behind an end date of selling petrol and diesel cars that focuses mines. Philip? 
I'd like to see the government develop a clear plan for how it's going to deliver net zero Britain across government departments with their responsibilities. I think the machinery of government is not yet in, in shape to be able to deliver this. And that's what I will be pressing the Prime Minister to explain, uh, actually, when he comes before the liaison committee that I'm questioning him on tomorrow. And finally, Simon. Uh, so, so actually, I was I was going down Philip's route, actually, but but maybe more than a plan. This needs to be something that is programmatic, that there is actually a delivery function in government somewhere that is empowered to make this happen and to work with the private sector and cities and all the other parties and internationally to drive this. If you think about um, something like London 2012, a giant version of how that was done might be something to think about. Well, I'm going to end by thanking all our panellists, Simon Harrison, Philip Dunn and Vera Hoppas. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're now joined by Olivia Blake, the Shadow Minister for Nature, Water and Flooding. Olivia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. Obviously, so that's a that's a fairly big brief, but um, flooding is obviously a very big topic when it comes to to climate change and climate resilience. How big a risk would you say flooding and rising sea levels and so on are to the UK? Yeah, so I mean, it is a big area um, to cover, but they're all very interconnected, obviously. And flooding is becoming a increasing risk and one that I think will have possibly the biggest impact on people's lives and livelihoods in the UK. And it's really important that we don't view the climate and ecological emergencies as separate because whilst we know climate is affected by rising carbon, a depletion in our kind of nature and our ability of nature to kind of hold back water can actually have a huge, huge impact on on what happens in in issues like flooding. You know, it is going to be a big impact and, and one that we'll see increasingly So it's vitally important that communities can both be made more resilient, but also more aware of these issues as they're they're coming forward. I I think a lot of us have a sort of mental image of of what rising sea levels mean, which was kind of typified by the the recent photo shoot for COP26 that the foreign minister of of Tuvalu did, of like literally giving a press conference, standing in water up to his knees to to make a point about the danger, Mm. uh, the danger it poses to, to small Pacific Island nations. From the UK specific perspective, is is that accurate or is the picture a bit more complicated than, than we are literally going to see coastal towns fall into the water? Well, we, we know that there are huge risks in the UK and we know this from the very technically named Climate Central's interactive coastal risk screening tool that rising sea levels could mean um, in my region, Yorkshire, that large parts of it could be submerged as soon as 2050 if steps are not taken to radically change course. So that that is huge. And, you know, we're not talking about small areas here. We're talking of, you know, areas including cities such as Hull, which is, is potentially very terrifying. And, you know, even the IPPC expect emissions to stay high, which unfortunately they, they predict would expose an additional somewhere in the range of 250,000 to 400,000 people in in Europe of river flooding and potentially up to 5.5 million per year of coastal flooding. So it's kind of both internally and on the coast that these risks are going to hit unless we do something very drastic in terms of our defences, but also tackling the root cause of, of climate change. So let's let's talk about flood defences. It kind of feels like they've they've not historically been something we've we've 
been especially great at investing in in this country. Is that a fair comment? I mean, why, why would that be? Yeah, I think I think I don't know really why it is. I think, you know, we have quite an aging kind of infrastructure around all our water, actually, which is is a shame because it, it means that now we're at this point, it's going to be incredibly difficult and require a huge amount of investment to to get to the place that we need to be. And the other side of this is that, you know, a third of England's flood defences are actually in private hands as well. It's not just about having them, it's also about the upkeep. And uh, recent research showed that more than a thousand were found to be in a poor state of these privately owned flood defences. Some were at risk of complete performance failure. So what we're talking about here is about making sure that what we've got is still good enough to withstand some of these 100-year, 200-year events that we're we're likely to see much more regularly than that. It's a bit of a difficult thing to talk about because it gives people the false impression that that we've probably got 100 years between these events. It's it's more a measure of the chaos and and scale of the events rather than how, how, how likely it is to take place. So it's really, really important that we we put pressure on government to be clear whose responsibilities it is. And and I think that's been a bit muddled over the years. And, you know, whilst I really welcome the partnership working that's been going on in places like Yorkshire, actually, that have really seen, you know, some of the more concrete solutions going forward in, in, in quite a successful way, it's still quite limited in the in the amount of money that we're putting in at the moment. And we're not funding all, all the flood defences that we need to. And we're not making use of the catchment-wide nature solutions that would help as well. And we, we could do so much more on that. I enjoyed the pun on the concrete things we could be doing. What do what, what do flood defences actually look like? And what are some of the... I mean, are we talking about physical barriers in some cases or is there more subtlety to it? I think there is more subtlety to this. So, you know, certainly... Of course, it's it's about um, concrete barriers, but you know, there's only so much of that you can do. You can only build the walls as high as you can build them, and you can't keep doing that essentially. So it's about holding back the water, slowing the flow of the water, finding ways to make sure that you know pumping stations are kept viable in in big events as well as another issue. Because I think some people think some of our defences are kind of just come on board when there's a lot of water. But some of them actually have to pump all the time because of the level of the seawater in in mines, for example. So in Doncaster, I've been to see a pumping station which is active the whole time, but also has great banks to kind of hold back water when there is a flood event to protect thousands of homes. So it's about making sure that we have an integrated system, not only for that very kind of intensive kind of pumping of water and holding water back, and making space for water in, in our communities, but also making sure that through planning and other other developmental kind of views, that we we think about urban drainage, for example, and and make sure that all developments have have drainage and sustainable drainage systems in in them. So we don't have that rapid runoff that can really cause problems. You know, recently we've seen all the debate about storm overflows and how important it is to look again at our whole sewage system to see whether we're dealing with this in the right way because we have a sewage system which just simply isn't big enough for what we're putting into it at the moment. So there are some big challenging questions in this area and and ones that I think the public are becoming much, much more aware of, not just because um, it's about water quality as as much as um, keeping homes safe and livelihoods safe from flooding. 
I mean, something else we've maybe not been historically great at in this country is a willingness to invest in these kind of not just emergency uh, defences, but also sort of emergency capacity in, in public service and so on. The kind of stuff that you do only need in a crisis. But if you don't have when you get to that crisis, it becomes a quite significant problem. And one of the reasons for that is that often the public don't see the value in these things to those crises. I mean, how do we bring the how do we bring people along with the need to actually kind of spend serious money on this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that's a really valid point. It's, it's kind of difficult. People don't imagine the worst thing can happen. And I think that that's on a lot of people who are involved in emergency planning to make sure that, you know, we only have to look at the coronavirus to see how unpreparedness can cause cause big difficulties. So I think that it's about building, making sure people are aware of the narrative and the research that is out there, not only to help, you know, people protect their own homes, which is obviously an option as well you can put some some mitigation things into your own properties for example but i think that certainly the front line and you know i've spoken to the fbu the fire brigades union about this these issues and and they're very very worried with the scale of cuts they've had over the last decade about the increase in in response and, and specialist response to some of these emergencies that we will see not least wildfires for example but especially flooding and flood defenses in the UK so i think I think the workforce are very aware at the risks and, you know, we we don't want to see people ill prepared to go and face these issues and support our communities. And, you know, this is going to become an increasing problem. So I think it has to become a priority. We have to completely be honest with the public about how far down the track we are. And unfortunately, you know, COP26 didn't deliver on 1.5 degrees centigrade and 2.4 will will be devastating around the globe so unless we get public buy-in and the political will I think we're going to struggle and I think that we have to well I certainly will be pushing for much more to be done on this area and to help get that message across to people that this is worth investing in in the long run because the costs associated with the damage of climate change will be catastrophic as much as the uh, catastrophic weather will be as well. I'm going to turn back to domestic politics in a second, but just I've been asking everyone on this podcast, you know, what was your what were your big takeaways from COP26 other than it not going far enough? What was there in there that that excited you or, or horrified you? I mean, obviously, I welcomed the the pledges around deforestation and, and that links very heavily with with holding back water and things like that. But I think that, you know, it was quite clear that this was a bit underwhelming, that the actions that we need to see to actually get on top of peatland restoration and things like this are really important. And I'm really looking forward to COP15, actually, because I think that that will be a, a change moment as Paris was for climate. And I think that COP15 is we'll be talking much more about nature and how we can utilise nature to help us restore our world. So I think that actually that's an opportunity uh, next year in China. But really coming out of COP26, I am a little bit disillusioned with with where we've got to. And I think that actually communities on the ground are actually much, much further ahead in some of this. And they just need access to finance to be able to deliver a lot of it. Thinking about some of the great projects I've been out to see whilst in this role on peatland restoration, for example, but also on, on, on trying to slow the flow. Really, I think that they just need some finance to unlock some great solutions that could really, really help in the broadest sense and could actually also help the nature emergency, which is 
is essential that we tackle as well. And just final question, back to the kind of Westminster bun fight. What do you think this government is is getting wrong on these issues and what would Labour do differently? It's simple things. And, you know, this this brief that I'm in covers a lot of different areas, as you mentioned at the beginning. But the one example from the nature kind of area of the brief is, is peatland restoration. The government simply is just not doing enough on that. Peatlands are huge carbon stores, but they're also massive sponges, essentially, which hold water up in the uplands. And unfortunately, we've still got burning allowed to continue. We've had hundreds of burns this season, which damage and expose the peat, um, which which leads not, not just to carbon leaching out of the earth essentially and and no longer being stored but also water not being able to be absorbed in the right sort of way because the the mosses which are great and provide this amazing sponge and and landscape are damaged that's one thing that would set us apart from government you know we would we would ban all burning on upland peatlands and with sewage which i think is the other big one which people are very concerned about at the moment we were very clear that we wanted to support the duke of wellington's amendment which went much further and much stronger words than the government um u-turn um <laughs> went on ending the uh, the discharge of sewage into our waterways and into our oceans so I think that's some clear blue water, if you'll pardon another pun, between us and the Tories. And I think that in terms of resilience, we've got a lot of work to do. We have to be led by the science. We will be conducting a whole review of all our policies to make sure that they are up to scratch because, you know, this is such a dramatically changing and difficult thing to predict. But it's one that we absolutely have to get on with. And the final thing really is is from that source to see, making sure that we're rewilding our oceans as well, which not only helps with nature, but also can help prevent coastal erosion and coastal flooding in that way as well. So, you know, we absolutely have to do all these things in order to help protect ourselves. But also the benefit of this approach is that you're also tackling the root cause at the same time. The Tories have, have, have done a lot of promises on flood defences. It's always responsive. It's never forward thinking in terms of flood defences. So that would, that would change under Labour. We, we need to have a proper plan. And we simply don't feel that the government has one at the moment. Olivia Blake, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Engineering a Better World from The House Magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. And do leave a rating review to help others find the show. Our recordist was Ritz Jarman. Production and editing on Engineering a Better World was by James Miller and Nick Hilton for Podo. Thanks for listening. Listening.